A quick disclaimer, opinions of host and guest do not represent the views or opinions of functional movement systems. Always consult your physician before beginning any exercise program. This general information is not intended to replace your healthcare professional. Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice, giving you guys a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. Let's preview what's coming up in this episode. Many of us strive for better mobility in our movement, but can we have too much? And what does that look like? Today, we talk with Dr. Jenna Gourlay on the subject of hypermobility. Some are born with it, some acquire it over time. Regardless, it can cause higher risks of injuries, but can also give you a competitive advantage. We discuss how to identify hypermobility, risks involved with hypermobile individuals, and how to train them. We cover the phenomenon in volleyball players, gymnasts, golfers, NFL players, the elderly, Michael Phelps, and even Tiger Woods. This show has a lot of range, so sit back, relax, and let's get going with today's episode of the Movement Podcast, powered by FMS. Really excited! We've got Dr. Jenna Gourlay here today, and I'm really excited about the topic we're going to be getting into. And it's it's about really about mobility. And Jenna, I think a lot of people, and great, you know, chime in here too. Um, I know you will, uh, but I think most people out there assume you've got to have a lot of mobility. And mm-hmm. they, you know, as we get older, obviously we we decrease the amount of flexibility we have. But there's some people out there that have a little too much. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So how do we how do we combat that? I mean, where, when do we know there's too much, and, and when do we realize that we need more mobility mm-hmm. um, in a sense? All right, let's let's frame the subject matter: um, mobility, flexibility, range of motion, freedom of movement. We're all talking. Can you put your posture and your body in positions that most people should have and be available? And I would say half the public for the rest of their life is going to be working on flexibility. And in a almost an equal half probably doesn't need to that much. However, when you're born with unbelievably good flexibility, that's not an asset that mm-hmm. that can often be a, li- a liability. So the word hyper means more than normal. Mobility is just your freedom of movement. So if you're born with what we call hypermobility, that means on a given test you have more flexibility than we think would be good for you. And the reason we know that is people who are hypermobile often have a different uh, palette of injuries as people who are too stiff. And I'll let you... But, hold, but, you know. but Gray, let me, let me speak to this because you just said something that may be a little bit confusing. Okay. You said we're all born to be hypermobile. But no, are we all born hypermobile? We are. And... and we're we're born because we haven't challenged gravity yet. We're pretty much in a in a floating little bubble for a long time, and all of a sudden we challenge gravity. Some of us get right in the middle. We challenge gravity, and we have average flexibility and average strength without working on either. Some of us naturally, our neurological system probably likes the consistency of stiffness, and some of us don't have quite the same amount of collagen. So whether you want to get strong or not, you can bend your fingers back really far. Your knees hyperextend. If somebody can remember a picture of Michael Phelps standing there with the gold medal, 
His arches are collapsed. His knees are hyperextended. He's got a long torso and these, you know, he's great in a pool. You don't want to see that guy running a football because if one person hits him, his arms and legs are just going to fly off. But yet for the sport of swimming, he's the machine. He's got a great engine and he doesn't have to work against his own resistance. So if you're, if you've been working on your flexibility, that's great. But there are some people with absolutely no work at all that look great on a movement screen till they get to the push up, mm-hmm. And that's scary because now the way we see you in your movement, you can get into a lot of positions, but you don't have the strength to get out of something like a push-up without compensating. And so we have to identify this because it's on the rise, just like asthma, autism, and a lot of other things that probably have an environmental and genetic component. Uh, we're seeing more of it. And I think it's because we grow up in shoes. We don't climb trees anymore. The playgrounds are closed down. And so kids sit a lot. And so those that are predisposed to have more than enough flexibility don't do what they need to do, which is bang your body around, learn your limits, and get a little bit stronger in the postures and patterns that you're going to use a lot. So Jenna, my question to you and your background Kind of going off what Gray just said, are people born hypermobile or do they become hypermobile? Or is it both? That's the question. And it has been, research-wise, it has been both. You can make the argument either way. There are individuals that are just born congenitally hypermobile. And then there are that other school of thought where it's, okay, you, you know, you, did you gravitate towards gymnastics because you were really flexible or did you get more flexible because you did gymnastics? And they do play off each other to some extent. But there are some people that are just born with extra motion. And those people that are, are born with that extra motion, I think a misconception is that a lot of those people feel tight. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the big problem is trying to navigate through that because these people who are in essence, I mean, take myself, for example, I'm pretty mobile. Mm-hmm. But when I do the stand-up desk, my hamstrings start burning. Mm-hmm. And they and I'm, I'm sitting there going, man, I'm stiff. Yeah. And I think that's the way a lot of people feel. So, I mean, it's, speak it's to that. It's funny you say that. So, if... A few years back, I took over as the team physical therapist of the volleyball team. Had no idea what I was walking into. At first, I was like kind of upset that it was volleyball because I was like, you know, there's it's not as big as a soccer team. I'm probably not going to get any, you know, you're not going to get contact injuries. I was expecting to see like hardly any athletes with injuries because of a smaller team and because it's non-contact. And I was completely wrong. I ended up seeing like 14 out of the 16 players at some point in the season. But what you're saying is that they often feel tight. It's It's seriously every single one of them. I will never forget one of the first players that I was doing the, the FMS on, we get to the active straight leg race, so where they just have to, you know, lift their leg up. And, I mean, she goes to probably like 140 degrees. So, you know, like think about 90 is, you know. Her kneecap's getting ready to hit her in the eye socket. Yeah, she, yeah her, her leg is nearly at her trunk. And she goes, after this, can you stretch me out? I feel really tight. And I'm like, you do not need to be stretching, but you're, you're exactly right, and they feel feel like they're tight, but they're not. And so because they feel like they're tight, they're constantly trying to stretch, but they're getting into these crazy positions that so many other people couldn't even get into if somebody pushed them there, but they're just like hanging out there. Like, when will this, when will this tightness go away? And well, here's, here's a cool thing. I, I, cause I've heard that too. And I, I felt it in myself, just like you have. What's the difference in the way tightness and fatigue feel when a muscle's fatigue? And when a muscle feels tight, really all you want to do is change the way that muscle feels. And so when your 
fatigued, you want to rest. And when you feel tight, you want to stretch. But believe it or not, when we take those people who have, we measure way more flexibility than they need, and yet they're reporting tightness. If you would give that person what you and I and Lee would consider a stability drill, five minutes later, they don't feel tight mm-hmm. anymore, yet we haven't taken them to the extreme of anything they've got. And so I honestly think that when people who are hypermobile say, I feel tight, they're talking about the fatigue in their postural muscles and their postural muscles shut down. So just like Lee said, his glutes aren't holding him up. He immediately used his hamstrings. Mm-hmm. They're not made for that. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not made. to. So when you're using a mover muscle as a postural muscle, it's going to get fatigued really quickly and stretching changes tone. But it's high tone because it's working too much and tired, not high tone because its length is changed Mm -hmm. to the detriment of movement. But I think this gets into a lot of the confusion in the profession, whether it's physical therapy, strength, conditioning, fitness. Is it a mobility problem or is it a stability problem? And I think what we're describing is both. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the difficulty is when we say, hey, you got to get more mobility. Well, your hamstrings feel tight, but it's not the mobility that's the issue. You've got to get more stable. And I think this whole that whole conversation can get pretty confusing. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I first started treating them all. So it's kind of cool when you get a whole team all at once because you get to see patterns that I might not have picked up on if I had, you know, one player here and one player there. But all of them were coming in with, you know, just nagging things like no major injury or anything, but like their shoulder hurt and their knee hurt and all these things. And I'm looking at it. And as I'm looking at them, like I'm finding what appear like mobility problems, you know, they, they're, they're lacking flex shoulder flexion or they're, you know, they're not able to move how I'd expect them to move. And I'm trying to treat them like I would treat anybody that walks in the clinic. And what I came to was that may not be best. All of a sudden I'm like doing things that I would normally do and people aren't getting better. Like for example, I had this one player that she, uh, she was lacking when I broke out her pattern. She was not able to get full shoulder flexion. I find a trigger point in her subscap. I'm like, all right, I'll needle this. I'll needle a few things and she'll feel better. And I do all those things. And then I recheck her shoulder flexion to see if I made a difference. And I ask, does that feel any better? Did we get any farther? And she goes, maybe a little. And I look at her and I know she's lying to me. She doesn't want to hurt my feelings. And this kept happening. I kept, you know, identifying what I knew was a soft tissue problem. And I was trying to bring all my typical things to it. And none of them were making the progress that I thought they should. And I put in that same girl, I get her doing an arm bar for some scapular stabilization. We finished and she's like, oh, it feels great. Had like nearly all our movement back afterwards. And I'm like, just did, you know, what I thought would have been a great treatment. And now we got to do this. And now that's 20 times better. And I kept seeing that. And all of a sudden I was like, there's something different about this population recognized later. Yeah. They're hypermobile. And they'll never, no matter how many times you do the trick, they'll never ask you for stability work. Mm -mm. They always want soft tissue. It's like waiting for a kid to ask for broccoli. They're never going to ask for broccoli. You got to freaking give it to them anyway. And I think that's the confusion. You did a stability drill in order to fix the mobility. And I think that, in essence, is what confuses a lot of people. Not, and again, professionals, not mm-hmm. just the player. I mean, you're, you're, you know, the player just wants their shoulder better, but yeah. you gave her a stability drill. So, oh, yeah, it's great. But then the professionals out there say, yeah, well, I got to stretch or I got to do kind of the same thing you just, you realized. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we have to start really having that, you know, more candid conversation about. Got a quick historical sidebar. 
when Lee was at Avert University consulting with the NFL and MLB and, and, and doing some work in basketball as well. When he's the director of the sports medicine program, he could choose any team that he was going to be an athletic trainer with. Lee chose volleyball as well. I'm not sure why Lee chose volleyball, but it might not have been the same reasons you did. But uh, Lee was on that job. He Football players were dropping like flies. His expertise was compartmentalized to these eight people. I'll, t- I'll take care of the volleyball team. <laughs> wow, that's that's exactly. awesome. It's, it's inside. It's only 15 female yeah. athletes. They only pra- they practice right outside my office. Yeah. I, yeah, so, uh, yeah. I don't want to be outside in the rain. So I think we'll we'll definitely get to kind of the treatment of hypermobility and and how to get there. But you know, going back, how how do you identify this, or how does someone maybe mm-hmm. identify it in themselves? They someone might be listening, thinking, "Wow, I am stiff. Maybe it's something else." So using that Biden criteria, so you can you can get this online. But it's essentially nine criteria that determine whether or not someone is hypermobile or not. And it's looking at, uh, do their elbows hyperextend? Do their knees hyperextend? Are they able to bring their thumb to their forearm? And uh, how much pinky motion do they have? And if they can palm the floor or not. And depending on where you fall on that determines how much hypermobility you may have. What I noticed about the Brighton uh, and Brighton criteria, so there's a, there's a list of questions mm-hmm. you can answer. Yes. And there's a, there's a few movements you can do. And by having both the survey and the screen, The thing that was interesting to me is when you look at the criteria, they look at the flexibility of a finger joint, the flexibility of your thumb, both elbows, both knees. And you see this a lot in gymnasts. They have that elbow hyperextension. Mm -hmm. It's hard to miss. You see the, they call almost call it swimmer's knee, the the knee uh, where your knee goes beyond straight and into the other direction. Same thing with the elbow. So what we've got is a joint appraisal and then there's a movement pattern. Can you palm the floor? Mm -hmm. And we often see people who could palm the floor without stretching or warming up. And that, that's the one that scares me because when we have people with loose joints, but they can't palm the floor, I know they're carrying enough tone just mm-hmm. to hold themselves together. And I think if, if we have somebody who has hypermobile joints, but they don't feel flexible and you go and stretch them out, you left them at the exact same horsepower with less brakes. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the scary part of it. And so all my career, I've been trying to get those volleyball females jump a little rope. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they would, they got the 10 minute stretch where everybody's gossiping and stuff like that. And I'm like, <laughs> you guys need to be jumping off of something and hitting the ground and, and almost wake up your neurological system. Cause if you take this sloppy movement to the volleyball court and you try to become crisp, you're going to be a half hour into your training before you actually start getting your timing and coordination. And that's what people need to realize it is. Some of us are born with a little bit of a extra elasticity in our collagen, but you've got this great neurological system that can basically make up. So when you're born a little bit stiff tissue-wise, you can easily do things to relax your neurological system. You don't need this much park and break on. And there are things you can do when you know that you fit that hypermobility, that extra flexibility you can do to upgrade your neurological mm-hmm. system. And we used to see this with like products like the power plate, these vibration plates, jump rope, anything that compresses or distracts joints sends a signal to the postural muscles to hold yourself up, Keep your alignment. Don't sacrifice your alignment for movement. And the minute that the hypermobiles do that, 
they almost have a competitive advantage. But if they don't do that, they don't. I think in my experience, great. You talk about me working the volleyball team. I, I was a strength <laughs> coach for the volleyball team for about actually about ten years. Coming up with some of the same issues you talked about, Jenna. And I think in my experience, working with hypermobile people is much much more difficult than working with someone who is really stiff, because it is you know they're constantly when they're getting out there they're kind of banging against their joints, and it's hard to juice up that neurological system to control it. And it's much easier getting someone to stretch out. Yeah. And it's, it's the hardest conversation is convincing them not to stretch. Right. That's the hardest one that you're going to have is how to get them to stop. But if you can give them something like jump rope or uh, bear crawl, something like that, where they can do it and they see that change and they feel better after they do it, it becomes a much easier conversation. But if we just sit at the table and I say, stop stretching, they're going to be like, absolutely not. I'm, I feel tight. But there's some athletes that need or think they need um, this hypermobility to perform at a high level. And that may be good or it may be bad, I would think, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, when you think about like gymnasts and uh, ice skaters and things like that, they're, they're using hypermobility, but not always within a safe way. I mean, if I go back to my volleyball players, we have more than anything else, you'll see like subluxations and dislocations and things like that because they're getting into positions that they necessarily shouldn't be getting into. And if they can't control that range, that's where you start getting into some problems and some injuries. And Greg, we've, we've had our fair share of golfers run through here. And golfers are another good example um, of people who need to be pretty mobile but it's that razor's edge that you've talked about that if they go beyond that, they're setting themselves up for some problems. Exactly. You look at a PGA Tour player, <clears throat> they're just like Lee said, they have the best anti-locking braking system there is. They never slam on brakes. They always know how to create acceleration, create deceleration without exploiting that end range of the joint, which is such a sensitive place. But I almost did like did like this. When, you're, when you have natural flexibility. You're born with it. If you've got power, you wind up pitching a baseball, playing a little bit of tennis, being a dancer, a gymnast, or an Olympic weightlifter. If you're born with a lot of flexibility and you've got a lot of endurance, you wind up being a marathoner or a swimmer. And never the two shall meet. You either you either got the power or you got the endurance. I've, I hardly ever see people with both. But then where is a runner going to have that slippery slope when that arch falls, when that posture dumps, when that breathing changes? And Jenna, when we went through the PE class together, I had this little mantra that I used for myself and the kids. It's breathe, bend, balance, and bounce. And usually hypermobiles don't have any bending problems. Mm -hmm. But if their breathing is out of sync, they can't find their timing and coordination. So I always worked it backward and said, if you're having a problem with your bounces and your jumps and stuff like that, go back to your balance. And if you're having a problem with your balance, can you bend enough? Mm -hmm. And if you can, then you're not breathing right. And so we always just ran through those things up and down that scale. And people who are a little stiff find where they need to be working. And most of the time, people who are hypermobile find out, I'm getting ready to go explosive and I can't even balance yet. So. Well, let me ask both of you guys this. I would, I would guess... And this is a pure guess. Tiger Woods is probably borderline hypermobile. Yes, he is. In, in order to yep. do what he does, yep. what's also Tiger Woods' history tell us? He's had quite a few injuries. So there is a there is a point with which you are going to, you know, if you're hypermobile and aren't doing something about it, that you're setting yourself up with some problems. 
So we keep talking about specific sports, and I'm, I'm seeing kind of a trend here. A lot of the female athletes are kind of complaining this and, and coming in for it and being treated. So is that is that something that we see across the board? Is it a little bit more female, you know, they're more likely to be hypermobile? You'll, you'll see it in females, but you'll see it in males too. And that's a big thing that you're going to want to pick up on. If you have a male that's hypermobile, again, they're going to need something different than just the typical one that comes in. And if you miss that, a lot of times you're missing out on, on helping that individual. I'll see it a lot in kids too. You know, maybe it's part of the growth spurt. Maybe it's just where they are in life. But again, they need something different or they need that thing to ground them or to give them that stabilization or that motor control that if they don't have it, that's going to be an issue at some point. Mm -hmm. Before we go into some, I think, some simple and practical solutions to how to deal with this, the way we identified it through the science that we've contributed to is a hypermobile person coming to the functional movement screen will look better than average because Mm -hmm. the functional movement screen was built with an intent to be mobility sensitive. So they will actually sometimes get a little bit higher score than they deserve because we have one pure stability station and that's the push-up. The squat also has a bit of stability, but you can get there if you're flexible enough without much integrity. When we started doing the one-two punch of the Y-balance test, we found out that these people appear to be good movers, but the minute we put them in a squeeze, like balancing on one leg or planking on one arm, the wheels fall right off the cart. And so they score worse than average on a balance test and better than average on a flexibility test. And we all see that. That's a dangerous thing to walk in my weight room or come to my boot camp. And most people don't know it. And so when you flunk a movement screen because you're just stiff, that's going to create one problem. But when you're hypermobile, our movement screen and the Y balance test don't say you're stiff. But if they say you're asymmetrical, wow, that's horrible. And Lee, Lee and I got on this journey with a military study done by a researcher named Napic that said asymmetry seems to be as compelling as weakness and stiffness as a precursor for injury. And 20 years later, we're seeing that in risk factors, in global movement risk factors. Asymmetry is just as bad. Being able to do it on one side and not the other is almost as bad as not being able to do it at all. Well, again, it goes back to our fundamental kind of philosophy here at FMS is you've got to screen and test to identify the issue, but not just identify the issue. You've got to make sure that you use that information and get the feedback you need to make sure you're having success, just like your volleyball player. You know, you did something and their shoulder didn't range of motion didn't get, yeah. get better. That's you've got to go back and prove to yourself and to your athlete that what you're doing is working or you're not going to be successful. No, and, and, and we came here and one of the things that I've been banging my head against the wall is I work with a lot of very intuitive coaches. And they say, listen, man, if I can just give these kids my workout, I'll know who needs what. And when they're talking about kids that are stiff and weak, they're probably 80-20, if not better. But we got a lot of strength coaches now that don't know what the heck to do with hypermobility. They don't know how to see it because hypermobiles can compensate. They can add speed and a flurry and a flash of movement, and you can't see the mistake until they're hurt. Um, I'm hypermobile. I had 18 fractures before I was 18. I shouldn't have been playing football, 
but it just seemed, I mean, there's no cheerleaders for the swim meet, so I <laughs> play football. Um, but that's, that's the whole thing. So all these coaches out there, and I talk to them all the time, and God bless them, I used to be you. I could give somebody a few moves and a workout and figure out what they needed. You cannot do that statistically as good as I can with a 10-minute screen up front. I will beat you every day, and it's not personal. It's simply there's a better strategy than you assigning a workout and then figuring out what they can and can't do. So if you're still doing a little bit of that, you're going to be good with mobility problems, and you're going to be inept with motor control problems. Well, I'll look at one thing that I think was a couple of years ago, Gray. You can't make assumptions. You can't judge a book by its cover at any point because – I think we had an NFL player come in a couple of years ago that big guy, strong guy, no question he was powerful. I think he was hypermobile. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and with our history in the NFL, we hadn't seen that before. We hadn't seen many people get a 21 on the movement screen, perfect score on the movement screen, and still be in the NFL because almost every strength coach knows part of this muscle we're putting on you is literally just to hold you together when the dump truck hits you. It's simply to keep you from flying apart, you know, like one of these dolls that has rubber bands in the joints. And, and so some of that that mass that we put on people is simply protect, protective. It has no horsepower, productivity, or anything. And there's there's some strength coaches that have a sense for that. But better to test it so you'll know when enough is enough and when enough isn't enough. So, All right, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're actually going to dive deeper into how to you know, target this hypermobility and what to do next. Performance is a goal for many clients and is the foundation for all skill-based sports and activities. The fundamental capacity screen is a straightforward, efficient, and repeatable method to measure four essential movement capacities, motor control, postural control, explosive control, and input control, or simply restated as the developmental movements of climbing, carrying, running, and jumping. Once movement competency is established with the functional movement screen, the FCS is the stepping stone between the functional movement patterns and skill-based coaching. The FCS demonstrates ways in which the four fundamental capacities affect sport and physical activity and provides a baseline measure enabling professionals to know where to focus training to reach higher goals. Get started today and find a course near you. All right, so let's get into some practical advice for the listeners out there. You know, where do you go? What's some advice that you can give them if they're working with hypermobile patients or maybe they even are hypermobile? I'm going to start with a volleyball example and then go general on it. I'm not a volleyball sports medicine professional or strength coach. I'm a volleyball parent. So uh, when my oldest daughter was playing uh, volleyball, my wife and I were helping out do some strength conditioning preseason. And my dad and I built a plyo box. And it was, it was a box that uh, a lot of people might not be able to jump on or off. But we didn't do anything but put the plyo box in the corner, and we did a standing long jump test on the entire volleyball team with a simple metric. Can you jump over the height that you are tall? Knowing that those people who can't jump the length of their body probably need a little bit more uh, timing, coordination, and unification of their, their body, they're not using their power right. We had a, about a, a split. Half the volleyball team couldn't cover their height, and half the volleyball team could. And I simply said, I, I told my wife, I said, watch this. Everybody who can jump over your body height gets to do the plyos, and we're going to jump off the box and do this. Well, what do we do? 
is what the group that couldn't jump their body height said. I'm like, figure it out. I, I think you should all be at least able to jump your body height if you're playing varsity volleyball. And it fixed itself in a week. We didn't have a periodization program. I didn't make them do deadlifts. I didn't do anything. It was simply the peer pressure of she gets to do the box and I don't. And all of a sudden, six inches came right out of that. But here's what they did. All the ones that were working on that standing long jump started using their body. They started using their arms. And horizontal jumping is not a skill as much as vertical Mm -hmm. leap. So it was something that they could do and get feedback and do. And the group that was working on that, they fixed it within a week. They just needed a goal that was, was measurable. What I've learned since then is if that's not doing it quick enough, don't think about making these people strong. Give them endurance with their postural muscles, and as long as they're organized in their alignment, they'll find their strength. These people can, can easily get into pattern, but they lose posture, okay? Whereas a mobile person holds posture, they just can't get into pattern. So we've used a lot of carries, and a lot of people think, well, I've never even, even seen people do carries. They do it on the strongman stuff. I'm like, no, that's what hypermobiles need. They need to hold their posture longer than they have strength. So we do a lot of weird stuff with kettlebell and sandbag carries now in different positions, one-sided, two-sided, just to make you own your posture. That's become a test in our capacity screen is what's your carry like. And if we see a weak carry, I don't even ask you about your strength because you got enough strength to blow your posture up. That means you're going to let go of your spinal organization, but you'll be able to squat and lunge all day long. And that is a recipe for an injury. So, yeah, it's, it's really much more about timing, sequencing. I think one thing you said was organizing your posture. You've got to get yourself in position, and these small little postural muscles must serve as the really the roots of the tree to get the bigger muscles to do what they need to do. I think that's one reason for me when I get those tight hamstrings, you know, I do a little toe touch progression to get me moving, but then I go right into tall kneeling turns and I do half kneeling turns. That's what helps me get more organized because I am a little bit more mobile um, than stable. And I think even though I feel stiff, I get through the stiffness, but then I got to follow right back up and create a little bit more stabilization. So the the tall kneeling turns, the half kneeling turns, I'm a little asymmetrical, got a little hip problem um, on one side compared to the other. So I'll do half kneeling turns with some weight, not heavy weight, because again, it's not trying to create strength or use the strength, but it's trying to keep keep better postural control um, and working on that one side versus the other because I get that one side weakness. So for me, that's what seems to work. And I think just tall kneeling turns, probably even some what you mentioned for your volleyball players, Jenna. Yeah, it's it's incredible how, like like we said, they want to stretch. We want to show them that that's not the way that they need to go. So you have to give them something that gives them the feeling they're seeking from the stretching. So for me, I've had such good results with doing, you know, tall kneeling, half kneeling, holds and turns, and just having them work through that posture and trying to work on that integrity. Because it, like you were saying, like when we tested the girls' carries, I mean, it was insane how some of the girls were like 17 seconds (laughs) <laughs> and then they just couldn't do it. I mean, and, and they were trying, you know, because there were some girls on the team that were getting, that were covering, you know, minute plus, minute 30, even two minutes. And then there were other ones that just couldn't do it. So it wasn't a lack of motivation. It was just they couldn't put all those pieces together. So I'll see great results with the holds and turns. I'll see the same thing with like a Turkish getup or even with some bear crawls. They do that and then they're good to go after that. They're like, oh, I do feel 
less tight, less stiff, and they didn't stretch. And once you can establish that with them, that conversation about not stretching becomes a whole lot easier. You know, I think what you said there is good because I easily go to carries because they are so measurably beneficial in a single session. And when you can change somebody's balance without practicing it in a single session, that's a pretty good feedback loop. But when we started doing the fundamental capacity, the way we really challenge your neurological system is we don't teach you to balance. We challenge your balance on a balance beam. And we just let you walk up and down the balance beam, forward, backward, sideways, walk on the balance beam. And most people get unbelievably fatigued in a short amount of time. But I call that neurological fatigue, mm-hmm. not metabolic fatigue. You are processing at a level that, that you're unaware of because so much of balance is subconscious. But when we bring it up to the conscious level, it's really weird to watch exercise professionals and coaches. They start posing their balance. They try to be stiff enough mm-hmm. not to fall off the beam. And I'm like, go faster. Just play with it. Go faster. And the funny thing is kids can recalibrate their balance so much quicker than adults because kids fall off the balance beam and it's only an inch high and they giggle and get back on and start running faster. And adults, how does this look now? How does this look now? And I'm like, you're still falling off the beam. How does it feel <laughs> to you? You know. So they're so worried about posing instead of really getting the balance. And what you said about bear crawls, fixes the upper body and spine balance and the balance beam fixes the lower body and spine balance putting the two together if they're good then if we see you still don't have a very long carry and what Jenna meant is if you're carrying a substantial a good percentage of your body weight if you're only going 20 30 seconds and then all of a sudden you have to put the weight down or you start slouching the wheels fall off the cart. And so we know you've got about enough postural endurance to make it through a 20-minute practice. And then you're just going to be slinging your skeleton at athletic moves, hoping it works out. <laughs> well, one of the mistakes I made working with the volleyball team I work with, and again, most of the those athletes were pretty hypermobile. Um, and I was always trying to get them to do a single-leg RDL, single-leg deadlift, mm-hmm. or a deadlift thinking that was going to be a really good, it is, in my opinion, a great stability, you know, exercise. But what do they constantly do? Lock the knee out, bend their back. I mean, they can palm the floor. And I think too often that, you know, that's a great exercise. But instead of trying to coach that person up, not to lock the knee out, not Mm -hmm. to just bang off their joints, go back to the balance beam, go back to the bear crawls, go back to those tall kneeling turns, because they don't, they did just you know you can coach them all day long and talk to them all day long they just can't control that yeah. yeah and 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 that's 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 what's so frustrating for i think a lot of our listeners who are experiencing some of the thing, same things we have if you flunk a movement screen or a y balance test let's all admit that that's a subconscious problem meaning no matter how much you will it to be you can't change your balance by yourself and you can't change your ability to squat deeper by yourself. And so we must admit, you're running a program that's anti-squat, anti-balance, anti-push-up, anti-leg raise. And it's subconscious. It's like me flicking at your eye and saying, stop blinking. It's going to happen every time. And if we try to consciously coach that without doing some subconscious recalibration, like just Play on the balance beam, but we go right into coaching and training without giving you the experience of, I'm going to give you a failure that doesn't hurt a bit. The balance beam isn't 10 feet off the ground, and there aren't cacti that are going to impale you if you fall off. Go up and down the balance beam, see if you can get 10 laps without a fall. 
I can't do it. Well, the very first thing is I'm like, why don't you smile and breathe a little bit? Why don't you quit flapping your arms? You know, and bend your knees a little bit more. And I'm just giving them a few coaching cues, but they're going up and they realize, oh, I was making this harder than it needs to be. And as soon as you got them there, everything else just coaches really good. But allowing people who are having a subconscious problem to play with a station, to let them do a half kneeling chop and lift and then tell you, oh my God, I didn't realize my left side was so bad, you know, compared to my right side, or I didn't realize I couldn't do a get up. I didn't realize I always step off the balance beam on the left side, you know, and letting them become aware and tell you their thing allows you to give them the solution. But if you're giving them the solution before they know they got the problem, don't work. So Jenna, we've, we've listed a few, we just talked about a few exercises, mm-hmm. right? We talk about balance beams. We talk about, you know, carries and turns. So how does a person know they're making progress? So yeah, if they, that, if they that, go and, if they go and do the Biden criteria and they realize I'm, I'm hyperextending, do the, the next time they do it, are they not going to score um, as hypermobile? They're still going to be hypermobile, but they're going to have better motor control. So if I was to say, you know, how can you gauge progress? I'm going to say like the motor control screen or the Y balance test is going to give you some really good concrete numbers because, I, you know, a lot of people stray away from trying to work on like the pushups. Eh? They're like, well, you know, it's a, it's a female. She's hypermobile. She's not going to get a two on a pushup. It's just not going to happen. But it does happen. And you can use like the Y balance test to show that you're making progress before you get that really good push up. Because if, just to give you guys a picture, most of the team when they're trying to do a push up isn't even getting like an inch off the ground. Like it's just nothing is happening. It's just uh, they're immediately struggling, and then they go into a prone press up, and they're like, "Is that good?" And you're like, "Do you think it was?" And they're like, "Nope." They don't even want to do the push up because they know how they know it's going to be bad before I even tell them what they're going to do. But using something like the Y balance test or the motor control screen to see that incremental progress is going to be huge. Because no, you're still going to be hypermobile. You're just going to have the motor control and be able to basically support that mobility that you have. And hopefully they don't have that stiffness that they were feeling, consistent stiffness over time. It's And again, it's not going to happen overnight. Mm-mm. I mean, it, you know, like you said, they're still going to be hypermobile. They're still going to be able to hyperextend their elbows. But it's that, again, knowing what exercises maybe not to do. Because that's one thing that I think a big takeaway should be today is, listen, if you, you know, confirm through some basic tests we talk about and not go in and try to stretch somebody out. Let's give some of these people some of these exercises we talked about and then just get that feedback like you just mentioned, Greg, that awareness. How do you feel today? Are you feeling a little bit less um, tension in your hamstrings? Mm-hmm. With with the group MoveNet, uh, Irwan and Danny are always giving you these natural little movement things, rolling around the ground, crawling, mm-hmm. climbing. But when they're doing a particular station of self-awareness, they've been asking a question, and I, I admire the way they do that. Where's your tension right now? So when I see somebody on a balance beam and they're on their fifth pass on the balance, where's your tension right now? And I'm not going to tell you what to do about it. I just want to be aware of it. And, and they will admit, my, my low back, my left shoulder. I mean, they're, they're right mm-hmm. there. And I'm like, what would happen if you let go of that tension? Just try to let go of that tension. Shake it out. And I'll give them an excuse. Shake out the limb or something mm-hmm. like that. And it's amazing because they realize, oh, they thought that tension was necessary to mm-hmm. perform. Believe it or not, it's actually interfering with your performance because you're putting all of your balance in your left shoulder. And it's because you don't have it in your core, but your core will never step up unless it feels it's wobbly. So I think asking, where's your tension right now? Where's your, where's your focus in your body? What's fatiguing first? Let it go. And, and 
I think sometimes we feel we need to be more specific in our command than that. But what's the worst they could say? I can't let it go. Okay, well, let's do a bretzel then yeah. and breathe through it. But but my whole point is either they're going to let it go and you got to give them time to let it go. And the tall kneeling turns are the way we do it. How do I let it go? Keep breathing deep. Mm-hmm. You know, you let it go on an exhale way better than an inhale. Just things like that. Just let it go. And what they will realize is, oh my gosh, I use my upper body to stabilize everything. I, you know, and so it's it's where where is that tension? Where is that fatigue? And can you let it go? And if they say I can't let it go, that's really a good place for soft tissue to start. And then help them let it go and show them you never needed that to begin with. It was actually slowing you down. So we've talked a lot about athletes and maybe even like the younger population, but what about maybe the elderly population? Do they display any of these symptoms or do you treat it any differently? Yeah, I mean, I'll see people in clinic. Um, it, it, Like we said, it doesn't necessarily go away. It might lessen over time because you get stiff. But I mean, there's, I can think off the top of my head, I had a a 62 year old that could still palm the floor, could still do most of those movements and was still struggling. Biggest thing was with balance. So it's not something that you kind of grow out of necessarily. It might change, but I don't know that, you know, it disappears completely. There's one place where hypermobility appears and sometimes disappears. And that's right after pregnancy. And it's because of the way the hormones are that allows a baby to pass through your pelvis that loosens all your ligaments. It's a hormone called relaxin. And so to people who are trying to get fit after a pregnancy or after a third pregnancy or something like that, I'm going to put you in a hypermobile category, whether you like it or not, because nothing bad will happen if we put you Mm -hmm. in that category. But if we don't treat you like a temporary hypermobile one of your fitness goals could become an orthopedic injury way before you know it and way before you know what happened. So that's the one time, I think, in life where uh, trainers, therapists, maybe don't consider this person is temporarily hypermobile for a reason, and I got to train them that way even though they may not have been that person who's been hypermobile all their life. Well, Jenna, thank you so much for being in the studio today. We really appreciate it and diving deeper into this topic of hypermobility, which you are an expert in. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Jenna. That'll do it for this episode of The Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please take a minute to subscribe and review. If you want to learn more about our system and take the next step in your movement journey, visit us at movementpod.com. Until next time, be sure to first move well, then move often.